following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello everyone, it's Pastor Alan here again from All Saints Lutheran Church with the message for November the 15th, 2020. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, which I've entitled The Remarkable Gospel. I have been doing this series uh, since the beginning of the year. In fact, it was the first Sunday in January that I started, and we're almost at the end. Uh, there'll be three more after th this one. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at what I'm calling Jesus' first trial, where he appears before the Jewish community leadership. Next week, God willing, we'll be looking at his trial before the state authorities under the governor Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor. Then, following that, we look at the crucifixion, and then the final, the final message in the series will be the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so that'll bring us, I'm planning that'll bring us to the middle of December. Uh, last time, we looked at the at the episode that occurred prior to Jesus' arrest when he, in anguish, prayed that God would somehow work out his mission without him having to suffer and die. And we saw how his wrestling with God, so to speak, prepared him for what was to come, his arrest and these trials that we're going to be lo looking at in the next couple of weeks. At the same time, the disciples who couldn't keep their their eyes open when the the guards come to arrest Jesus they all take off and we see how they were not prepared Jesus was prepared and now we're going to continue and see uh, what Jesus was prepared for and his remarkable there's that word again remarkable confidence in the face of the type of pressure and accusations and, and so on that he'd be facing and so we're going to be looking at Mark 14, verses 53 to 72. But to get some context, we're going to start a few verses before, starting at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This begins the portion that we'll be looking at today. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. 
Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Some of this is really hard to read. It's hard to hear. I pray that you would help me to to share what you've put on my heart as I've looked at these words. It's you that we need to hear from, Lord. Would you please speak through me, help me to communicate well, and may by the power of your Spirit in the name of your Son, may you do the work in our lives that you want to do at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Originally, I was going to call this the religious trial, and the other one would be something like the civil trial, one religious, one government. And there is some truth in that. The, The problem is they didn't see religion in those days in the way that we see religion today. For the Jewish people in the land of Israel, uh, the the spiritual and religious components of life were so interwoven into the culture. The uh, the the leadership, this council, we'll look at them the more closely in a moment. That Jesus was brought before were the were the leaders of the community, and so this is like a community religious trial. It's they're, they're, he's standing before the representatives of his own people. Now, in in their situation. This land of Israel was occupied by a foreign foreign force, the Romans. The Romans gave the the Jewish people a lot of freedom within limits. One of those limits, uh, one of those limits was they were not to execute people, and so the plan was to bring these charges, find charges against Jesus, reason some reasons to bring him to the Roman governor, in order for him to, to execute Jesus. And we're going to look at, at the the trial before the Roman governor, Pilate, next time. This week we're looking at the first trial where he's before the community leaders. So let's start again at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the 
chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This special group of leaders was called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin literally means, it's a Hebrew word that means to sit together. So it, it means a council. And so they were the ruling council of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And in many ways beyond as well. Uh, they were like the top authority of Jewish life in the world. And it was this group of people that Jesus has had the harshest words. If you remember from a few weeks ago, as he's in the temple and he's teaching, he's confronting the temple leadership and the temple system because it had become so corrupt. So they had a lot of, of, of reason to see Jesus' demise and, and get rid of him. Verse 54, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So when uh, Judas came with the temple guards and, and he kissed him as a sign that this was the one that they were to arrest, uh, all the disciples fled and they all took off, which would include Peter. But at some point, Peter starts following what's happening. And so he doesn't take off completely. And we know how he's going to react in a little while, but let's wait for that. But this this here in verse 54 helps us to anticipate Peter's role in the story so that we're about to we're about to encounter this trial but here's Peter and Peter's following at a distance now I wonder how many of Jesus followers follow at a distance they they they're, they're, they can't leave entirely they're curious enough they're loyal enough but they're not loyal enough to re to really be with him and to stand with him and so there's this tentativeness that 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 peter has we're going to see how tentative it is in a, in a few moments but i i wonder if this is telling us there are these people that maybe you and me that we're following at a distance and that's not a good place to be we'll talk about that more as we go along uh, maybe it might surprise some people that they were warming themselves by a fire but jerusalem is pretty high up uh, it's about a thousand meters uh, three thousand square feet uh, elevation and in the springtime this is passover it's a springtime it could be quite cold in at night in jerusalem and so there was all these people around nearby where these proceedings were being held and let's get into those proceedings. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. This really tells it like it is. This is not really a trial where people have brought charges against him. The, the temple leadership, the leadership of the people, had already decided they wanted to get rid of him, and they were looking for a reason to justify their plan. So this is not a fair trial. Now we might think this is really terrible. But it seems to me it's pretty common. We like to think we live in a just society. And in many ways we have in our current justice system, there is some semblance of justice. But the way people can treat one another, whether it's kids in the schoolyard or in, in, in companies and churches and other religious institutions, very often uh, we don't weigh all the facts before we determine something often we determine what we want to see happen and then we work towards getting that to happen and we need to be careful as we look at the dastardly deeds of these religious leaders not to think 
that this is them. Oh, those horrible Jewish leaders back then. Look what they did to our precious Jesus. No, that's not what, that's not why we have this. This is a mirror. This is a mirror, folks. This is, we're supposed to look at this and go, that's me. That's me. God help me not to be like this. Help me to be like Jesus. So let's go on. Let's see what Jesus is really like as he deals uh, with this very difficult situation. You might also wonder, well, why were they seeking testimony against Jesus if they've already decided that they want him put to death? Now, of course, they couldn't put him to death themselves. They needed to hand him over to Pilate. So they would need a reason to do that. It's interesting. The reason they bring isn't really the reason that they determine is is the problem. It, it seems to me that often what happens is when we want things to happen and we know either consciously or subconsciously that it's not really right, but we want something to occur, we often want a reason because we want to justify what we're doing. We want to feel good about doing wrong. Humans can be terrible. Have you ever met any? I was going to say just kidding, but not just kidding. Let's go on. Verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So there is, they're grasping at straws. They're trying to find something. And, and you'd think if Jesus had done anything even remotely wrong, they'd be able to, to, to mention something or at least get their act together. But we're seeing how they're in such disarray because it's, it's so unjust what they're doing. It's just so wrong. And yet that often doesn't stop us from pursuing things that we should not pursue and doing things that we should not do. Verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, so they found something to say. Verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So this, this, this thing of destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up, that actually, we find that only in John chapter 2, Jesus makes a comment about if destroy this temple, meaning his body, he would raise it up in three days, talking about his resurrection. But somehow the people took that, they combined it with his criticism of the temple, as well as his prediction of the destruction of the temple, and they kind of put it all together, and they began to accuse him somehow of plotting the destruction of the temple. And, and and this is what happens when we want to blame, we want, we've decided what the aim is, is to be. We've already decided that we got to get rid of this guy and, and, and do something terrible to him. We, we, we get confused with the facts and we, we take some true things, we combine it with things we're making up and we get it all wrong, but it doesn't stop the people from pursuing this kind of goal. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. His silence harkens back to the prophecy, the great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. It's verse 7 in particular, where it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There was no defense necessary because they were accusing him of ridiculous things. They couldn't agree. And uh, the the Torah, the law of Moses, Moses had set down that uh, 
that there needed to be two witnesses, two or three witnesses to establish facts, and they really couldn't get their act together. Uh, and it was the whole thing was was kind of ridiculous, and so he really had no reason to answer. And I do wonder if some of this is provided for us by Mark as a manual as to what we're to do when we find ourselves facing false accusations. Very often what we want to do is we want to defend ourselves and we want to correct what people are saying about us. You know, they get it wrong, they get it a little wrong, they 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 say some of what we really said and they mix it up with with fantasy, and then we want to correct it all. We, we need to learn not to be so defensive. And when, when lies are spoken, some, there, there's a time when some things need to be corrected. But when we're facing this kind of antagonism, then it's often best just to let them talk and, and wait for the right time to say something, which is what we see Jesus eventually does. And this is where the, the tone changes now, the second half of verse 61. And the high priest asked him, asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed, meaning the Son of God? It was very common, still is, in Jewish circles to reference God not by saying God or, or his name. So we say the Lord, we say Hashem, meaning the name, this sort of thing. So this is what the high priest does. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, now he answers. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, some people see here in the words, I am, the Greek is ego, me, and that's what uh, God says to Moses when Moses asks him his name at the burning bush. It might be a reference to that. It, there's a good chance here in this context, he's simply answering the question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. But then he gives him more than what he really asked for. And he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this, so he answers in the affirmative, and then he makes this proclamation about himself. And it's taken, his answer is taken from two places in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 110, verse 1, that reads, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this speaks about how God speaks to David and says that there will be somebody who will join him on his throne. That's not, that's, that's pretty wild. And similarly, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And it reads like this. I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I've come to realize that I have not given enough attention to this title that Jesus uses. It's the, his most used title. 78 times in the four Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And there are people that say, well, he's just saying the human, this sort of idea. But it's way more than that. When you realize Jesus spoke Aramaic, Daniel, the book of Daniel, about half the book, more than half the book is written in Aramaic. There's most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There's a few sections that are written in Aramaic. The language of 
the first century Jewish community in the land of Israel. That's the language they spoke. And he uses the term right out of out of Daniel to refer to himself. And this son of man uh, is, is presented to us in Daniel as this great divine personality who ends up ruling over everything. And I, I'm going to keep myself from trying to say more because I actually have to look at this more closely. It, it, it's way more important than, than most people think in terms of understanding who he is. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Son of God. But he's actually the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. And this is what leads to the, the reaction from the high priest and leads to Jesus being condemned. They understood this as blasphemy, that he would dare associate himself with this divine character that's not only uh, worthy of sitting on the throne of God, but he's the one who's going to judge and rule over the whole world. Which begs the question, whose trial is this? Here is the great high priest, the great, the, the you know, the, the the top of the top in the in the Jewish world, and he's standing over, say he was standing over who he thinks is just this carpenter rabbi who's kind of been a rabble rouser, that's been spouting off his mouth criticizing the the temple leadership, and and he's going to set him in his place and he's going to actually see that he gets executed. Looks like he's in control. He's the big judge. But who's the judge here? The high priest is actually standing before the judge of the whole universe. And while it looks like the high priest and the Sanhedrin are in control of the situation, actually Jesus is. And it would be, you know, eventually the temple would be destroyed. The priesthood would be no more. The way things appear aren't necessarily the way things really are. And in Jesus, God is calling us to connect with the way things are. And it can make us feel crazy when everybody else is speaking differently and they think they understand about what life's all about and what success really is and how we should protect ourselves and how we should relate to one another and and all the rest. But who's really crazy? God uh, God is the one who understands truth. He's the God of, he's, he's created reality. And most of the world, is, it's as if everyone's drugged, walking in a, a, a psychotic state of fantasy. And then we relate to the world, we spout out, out, off our political opinions and our, and our, our um, we, we, we think we know, you know, the experts think they know about everything and, and how we're supposed to live and all the rest. But it's God's word that has his truth. And God revealed his truth through his word. He's revealed his truth through his son. And by knowing his son, then we are anchored in life. And then we're in him, we're able to stand and face the difficulties and dangers of life. While those who think they know better They think they're so strong. They think they're so capable, but they will fall. Who do you want to be? 
Back to this, the first half of verse 63, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. And that was the sign of great grief over being in the presence of somebody who has slandered God and everything to do about God and God's ways. That's From the high priest's perspective, that's what Jesus has done. This is the first really honest thing that he did. He's wrong. He's wrong, but he believes that Jesus is just a man. He doesn't believe that he's the, the Messiah, the, the son of the blessed, the, the uh, son of man who will rule over the nations. He, he rejects those notions, and Jesus is saying that's who he is. And so the only conclusion before him is that Jesus is blaspheming. He rips his robes. Second half, verse 63, what is your decision? He says to the council, and they all condemned him as deserving of death. So they found their excuse, and their excuse to execute him was the truth. Think about that. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. It's so they're mocking him. But this is what people do when they, they don't understand the truth. They, they're not connected to reality. And then they're confronted with it. And they begin to act out in these violent ways. Don't be surprised when people just start, they get worked up because you said something that's true to them. Or you're standing for the truth and, and how you see a particular issue. Or as you're actually trying to share the truth about God and Jesus with them. And they begin to act out. Well, that's it's, it's that's all that there's left for them to do because reason is not playing any part uh, in them at that point. Now let's get back to Peter. Peter likely is, 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 is the story of Peter is a key component of the whole story. And a, a good chunk of the section is devoted to what happens to Peter next. And it's I believe it's there for us to learn a valuable lesson. Verse 66, I'm going to read a few verses. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man's one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Notice the contrast between Peter and Jesus. Jesus wrestled with the horrible thing that he was going to have to face as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the time he was done, he had resigned himself to just what he'd been praying, not my will, but your will be done. And he rises with his, with his sense of confidence and he's able to properly stand his ground and interact with the, the, the guards and the council without becoming overwhelmed by what he was being accused of and how they were trying to manipulate him and what they were applauding for him. Contrast that with Peter. So he's hanging around, he's trying to see what's happening, and he falls apart before whom? There's his master before 
the the top leader in the land, community wise. And remember, there, there was the Romans over them, but in terms of their own people, the high priest was it. And Jesus is there before this council, and they've got they've got power and influence, and he's standing his ground. And here's Peter crumbling before a servant girl. In that society, she's at the, the lowest rung of the social ladder. And she's, you know, oh, you're one of them. No, 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 no. And again, it's the second time it's her. And Jesus had said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Twice. The rooster crows, somehow he must have heard it because we, we have the account here. And that didn't clue him in. Something's wrong, Peter. Abort, abort. Get out of the situation. Do something. Or stand is probably the better term. And he's just so overwhelmed. He's distracted. He's afraid. He's confused. And then he denies him the third time. Then he hears the rooster crow again. And somehow, for some reason, it took to that point for him to get it. And he really falls apart with grief and regret and he weeps bitterly and it seems to me these stories are are presented to us in this way to encourage us to be like jesus and not peter here there's other passages about peter later on where he's our model of faith and courage and confidence but not here here he is contrasted with, with Jesus and his faith and his courage and his confidence. So the question is, how can we be more like Jesus? Now, thankfully, we know that Peter is restored to right relationship with Jesus later on. But we shouldn't use that to excuse ourselves from not being ready, not being prepared and not standing for failing in the way that Peter failed uh, in this story. So how, how can we expect that we would be able to stand when we face great pressure? Well, first of all, some of the pressure we face isn't even that great. The, how, sometimes we fall apart with just a little side comment from someone, or they look at us a little funny, and we want to shrivel up and die because we, from the shame of, of, that we feel just because somebody has looked at us funny. But then, of course, the, some of us have experienced pressure in our families because of our faith or, or how our faith informs our lives. You know, we sometimes talk about our faith as if it's simply a, a checkbox. You know, we check it off. You know, I go to church. I'm a Christian, this sort of thing. Even, you know, I believe in Jesus. Check. Without really giving ourselves to him in the way that we need to. In order for us to stand... We need to know God in a very, very deep way. It's not just uh, going through the motions. We need to know him. We need to know his word. We need to spend time with him in prayer, like Jesus did. We don't, we're not always going to face, we, we may never face anything close to what Jesus faced on, on that day. But we don't know what's coming. We don't know what pressures and challenges that we're going to face. We don't know what's happening in the world today with COVID and other things. How are we going to be called to stand, to be confident in, in the Lord? We need to seek God. We need to truly know him. We need to allow him to change our hearts, to change our minds and prepare us for the things that we're going to face. You know, just because we, we, we say we believe doesn't mean it's going to 
be smooth. It wasn't smooth for Peter. It wasn't smooth for so many believers in the day that 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 Peter spoke these words and Mark wrote them down. As I've said before, I believe this is why this is is being shared with us. It's being shared with us so that we learn these lessons, so that we don't become a betrayer like Judas or a denier like Peter, but rather that we learn how to face pressure, persecution, and the various challenges of life and be able to come out stronger as a result, not crumble in the face of them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for these words. And while some of them are hard, we thank you for the warning and for the help that you give us in teaching us your truth, for the power of your Spirit that we have because your Son died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And because of that, you equip your people to be able to stand as we as we fulfill your good mission in our day. Lord, help us to take none of this for granted, but help us to invest our hearts in, into our relationship with you through your word and in prayer. And then when the challenges come, however small or large they might be, help us to be able to stand. And Lord, if we at this time are remembering times where we have crumbled, where we ran away, where we denied you, where we were too scared to stand, forgive us, Lord. Help us to look at those things seriously and grieve over them, but also find your forgiveness that we would be able to stand and wait expectantly for you to send your son back to rule and reign over your creation. Please, Lord, have mercy on us all and equip us for all that you are preparing us for in these days and beyond. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you all. Please keep well. Keep looking to the Lord. If you have any questions, please email me at pastor at allsaintslutheran.ca. And so until next time, this is Pastor Alan Gilman. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.